Hi everyone, welcome back to Hitchcock University where you learn filmmaking from the masters. My name is Taylor Bickle. And last class session we talked about uh, Rodriguez's The Faculty. And uh, this class session we're going to talk about Spy Kids. Going all the way back to Robert Rodriguez's award-winning short Bedhead, which is what kind of got the ball rolling into El Mariachi because he realized how cheaply he could make a movie. He noticed how audiences responded to kids doing action and comedy, and that had always kind of planted a seed in his mind about wanting to do a family film. But it wasn't until doing Four Rooms. Now, we haven't talked about Four Rooms. Four Rooms was, was a, uh, an anthology film, about a bellhop at an old Hollywood hotel that was kind of run down and didn't have the same mystique that it used to have. I think it was Tarantino's basic premise to have four different people tell, like like each do, like four different directors with their own crew, their own everything, um, and totally separately from each other, each do like a chapter of like one night. Uh, for this bellhop. So Tarantino did one, Robert Rodriguez did one, a couple other uh, directors, younger directors like them did one. I think it's really funny. I think it's, I, and I think it's a fun watch. Um, and I personally feel that Rodriguez's chapters and Tarantino's chapter are, are the strongest. Um, plus, Rodriguez's chapter has Antonio Banderas. So like, who doesn't want to watch that? But anyway, so in... In the interview of Robert Rodriguez interviews uh, entitled El Mariachi Goes to Hollywood, Robert Rodriguez said, Spy Kids stemmed from four rooms. I just loved the way this family looked and when they were all dressed up in tuxedos and they just looked and, and they looked like little James Bonds. And I had this idea, what if Antonio and his wife have them be two spies as parents? So then I thought, oh, they could get captured and then the kids have to save them. Okay, that's Spy Kids, right? Because in four rooms, it's, it's New Year's Eve. And this family's all gotten dressed up. They're all going to go to some party or whatever. Um, they got two little kids, and it's Antonio and, and and the woman playing his wife, and they're all they're all dressed up and ready to go. And Rodriguez just love that look. They're like, yeah, they look like little James Bonds. It's really cool. Um, so that's where Spy Kids comes from. In fact, there's even a gag where Antonio is he's combing his son's hair, right? They they, they they pull that same gag almost straight from that movie and put it into in Spy Kids. So it's the the it's it's almost like Four Rooms. His segment in Four Rooms was sort of uh, I mean it was it was very clearly the the impetus that became the the impulse that became Spy Kids. So some of you have probably heard this before, but the number one rule in Hollywood, the number one rule in filmmaking is never work with animals or children. The reason is because it's a pain in the butt. Um, I've been on sets with animals and children. Not at the same time, I don't think, but um, sometimes it works really well and sometimes it, it's a struggle. Um, but this movie's based around kids. It, like there's two children at the helm of this movie. They are the leads. All right. So that meant that casting was super important. But Rodriguez didn't want to cast child stars. He wanted to cast kids that reminded him of his own siblings. Normal kids, you know, not outgoing and, you know, looking to perform at every second, you know, just, but you could get that out of them, you know. He's looking for kids, not performers. So they looked at like every child actor they could find. Um, and finally they find Alexa Vega, 
um, who was actually older than the role. She's she was older than the role was written, but she wasn't very big. She was always slow to develop height wise, right? I think I heard her say in an interview now that she's still only like five one or whatever, you know, and she's a full grown woman at this point. Um, so she because she was shorter, that always plays younger in film. It's a weird role, but 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 it almost always plays younger. Um especially when it comes to kids or any kind of adolescent role. So even though she was older, she could play younger. And because she was older, she came off much more intelligent than the role was. And Robert Rodriguez really wanted the role of Carmen to be very smart. She wanted, he, he wanted that character to be a very intelligent young, uh, young girl. So, so that combination was really perfect um, for the role of Carmen. And they looked at pretty much this every single boy in the age range they could find. Everybody. And one of the things Robert talks about is he had forgotten that typically in those initial stages of development, boys develop much slower than girls. So while he could find, while, while the search for a girl was not easy but easier, it became much more difficult to find a guy like, like a little boy who wasn't spacey, you know, and wasn't, you know, couldn't, you know, who could actually like lock in on the, on the role and, and lock into what he was doing. But the thing that struck him about Daryl Sabara is that not only, not only was he focused, which was crucial, but he had this fantastic imagination when he, when Robert and Daryl first met, they didn't talk about the role. They didn't talk about the movie. All they talked about was how Daryl wanted to build a flying car. And, and, and Robert just kind of like went with him on that. He's like, Oh yeah. Yeah. And they started talking about like what you would need to build a flying car and like how you would do it and all that kind of stuff. And he just loved that. Cause he remembered being that kid and having that imagination and that stage in his development. And he thought this kid's perfect. This is exactly what I need. I need a kid with this kind of fertile imagination. So don't work with animals or children. And here we go. We're off and running with two leads who have never done a movie, especially not a movie like this before. But that rule, that Hollywood rule, you know, which obviously Hollywood doesn't even follow itself. Kids are in movies all the time. Animals are in movies all the time. But that Hollywood rule becomes an interesting point for us because we talked about how in the faculty, Rodriguez was kind of pulling himself out of Hollywood and kind of trying to set himself up in Austin, Austin, Texas. And he said, he said this multiple times. You can find this all throughout a number of his interviews. He said, George Lucas told me, because you live outside of Hollywood, you're going to come up with ways of doing things and ideas that they don't think of there. And the reason George Lucas can say that is because he set himself up in Skywalker Ranch in, it's like outside of San Francisco. It's like in Napa Valley or something, I think, um, which is very different from Hollywood in case you've never been and experienced that. Like, and they're hours apart from each other. Um, and then, so, so Robert goes on to elaborate. He, he, he likens it to like coming home back to your high school town, 
when you go off in the world and make your life and you come back to your hometown and you find your old high school friends driving in the same circles, doing the same things, that's what Hollywood is like. It's a little block, little town. It doesn't really grow or change. And when you're outside, you look and you say, this doesn't work at all. Who thought of this system? So because Robert Rodriguez put himself outside of the Hollywood system and the Hollywood mindset, he was able to start approaching things and doing things differently than Hollywood. And this becomes a major theme for the next several movies we're going to talk about with him. So one of the first things he did was decide that he was going to be his own visual effects supervisor. Because what had happened on the faculty, they paid somebody to do that because that's what you do. And Rodriguez ended up doing all the effects himself. Because he'd get stuff from the post house and be like, that's not what I wanted at all. And then he would just do the effects anyway. So because of his effects experience, he decided, oh, I'm just going to be my own effects supervisor. And I'm just going to figure this stuff out. Because at that point in 2001, effect, uh, effects were really starting to change in new ways. You know, there was, you know, like movies like T2 and Jurassic Park had done a really good job in moving the you know ushering in the digital age but they they remained kind of stagnant up until late 90s early 2000s when all of a sudden we were really starting to tap into the potential of these things and robert just figured like well i know enough about effects now that there's no reason i can't just supervise my own effects you know and it'll help me personally as a filmmaker to to get involved at this stage in the game because then if I do ever hire somebody, I'm going to know just as much as they do, if not more. So Spy Kids becomes the payoff for all that effects practice he'd gotten on, on From Dust Till Dawn and the faculty. The issue with that is that Robert was like, so we can do anything now, right? And he's like, oh, I guess. Okay. So let's just go do stuff. So he ended up really pushing the boundaries there and, and, and ended up having to come up with a lot of his own techniques, um, especially because it was such a heavy visual effects movie that they were doing for far less money than any Hollywood you know, producer would have, would have wanted them to have by far. And, and he has said that a lot of the techniques that he came up with are techniques that are now very common. He, he, he didn't... I haven't found anything where he dives too deeply into those effects, but um, but I'm going to have to take his word for that one. Um, so let's talk about some of the stuff he did. Um, a lot of what he did involved him going out and shooting his own plates, but doing them in, in times and places that weren't meant to be times to shoot plates. Um, so they did some location scouting down in... Chile, Chile, yeah, over Santiago, Santiago, Chile, in a helicopter, just kind of flying over the town, looking at stuff, and all of a sudden he's there and he realizes, wait a minute, if I start shooting some shots now, I don't have to come back. Oh, that's a huge money saver. Okay, so it's him, a helicopter pilot, and a camera, and he just starts hanging the camera out the helicopter and grabbing all these shots, and he starts getting, um, so like for example. There's a park 
down under and down below them. And he's like, oh, this is a great overhead shot. Okay. Oh, and that could totally pass for the park that we already shot down in San Antonio. Perfect. So he shoot, <laughs> just gets, just, you know, quickly grabs an overhead shot of this park. And then is also able to, to double that shot as a background plate for when the jetpacks shoot up, which is a shot that he hadn't planned for, but he knew he could easily do it on the green screen back in Austin. You know, and then and the next thing he knows, he's shooting he's shooting background plates for the entire jetpack scene because he's already up in the air. Hey, why not? I'm paying for this guy's time, you know, and then I don't have to do it again. And one of he he called an effects house about the jetpack chase in Spy Kids, and they told him it would all have to be motion control, which is massively expensive. I mean, that means that means you get a very special rig, a rig that was built for they originally built those rigs, the, that that kind of a rig for uh, Back to the Future 2. Um, motion control rig, right? So it's a rig, it's a camera rig that you tell a computer what to do, and it will do the exact same shot every time. So what that means is you can put like one actor in one spot and the same actor in another spot, do the shot twice, and then you can blend the shots together in post, right? Or in this case... You tell the computer what to do. It shoots a background, a motion background plate, and then it does the same motion in front of a green screen, and then you blend the two together, and they match seamlessly, right? Okay. He's like, so the minute they told him it had to be motion control, he just hung up the phone because he knew he knew that was going to be ridiculously expensive, and he was pretty sure he could do it without that. So sure enough, he just shoots very smooth plates on his own and very smooth green screen on his own and then adds in camera shake in post because that was the thing. It was jetpack, right? So he wants the camera shaking as they're flying and they're like, oh, that's got to be motion control. He's like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> so he just shoots shoots a smooth plate, shoots smooth green screen and then adds the camera shake in post and then there you go. You, no motion control. But yeah, going back to the chopper, the other thing that they did is is he see there's this beautiful... Um, Ocean Drive, where this I think it's just a, or like just on the edge of Santiago, and so he just told the chopper, "Hey, pick a car, and follow it." <laughs> so he follows the car, and and then he says, and it's going down this winding road, and it gets to a curve, and he says, "Okay, don't follow it around the curve, just go, you know, just keep going straight." So he shoots the shot, following the car. And then as the car turns, it keeps going out over the, the, the chopper keeps going out over the ocean because what they originally wanted to do was do this car jump where, um, where the parents are driving the car, you know, it goes off, off the road and down in the water and turns into a submarine. Right. Okay. Well, the more they started looking into that, the more they were like, well, this is gonna be too much to do practically. I don't think we can do it. He's like, okay, we'll just do it digitally. And he's there in Santiago and he's like, oh, wait, this is perfect. So you can see there's a real car um, that they have a real lighting reference for so that they can cut cut out the real car and then just put a digital car in when it does the jump. And it, it, it matches almost, I mean, almost seamlessly. I mean, now, now a lot of the effects on this movie look dated because this movie's 17 years old. I mean, think about that. This movie's, this movie's been around a while. So, yeah, the effects look a little dated, but especially for the time, it was so seamless you know, just see this car, this real car, then all of a sudden it's gone, replaced by a digital car, you know, without anybody noticing, and then poof, off into the, the ocean. A little splash, boom, you're done. And then Robert Rodriguez even shot his own underwater plates, because there's all these underwater scenes, right, with all the submarine stuff. So he just went out and shot his own underwater plates. And then, not to mention, 
he shot his own underwater plates with real sharks. He went down to the Bahamas, went down on one of those little shark tours, dropped down in the water and shot him with real sharks, just shooting, just swimming by, you know. So all that stuff is stuff that he just did on his own. Um, now, this next part is going to set us up for the next couple of movies. Actually, it's going to really set us up for the rest of Robert Rodriguez's career, actually. Um, I Hold on. I got to check this real quick. I think that's going to extend to Alita, too, uh, which comes out in February. But they don't want to tell me which camera. Okay. So one of the issues with doing a VFX movie at that time is film was still the standard because digital cameras hadn't quite gotten to where they needed to be. They were on the way. George Lucas had shot some scenes in The Phantom Menace digitally with those uh, Sony HD 9000s or whatever they were. But film was still the standard. And one of the issues that they had on this movie was there's so much green screen. And the problem with shooting film on green screen well, the problem with shooting green screen in general is you need the highest quality image you can get so that you can get the cleanest key you can get. Remember shot on green screen. Keying is taking out the green and replacing it with the background. And that task can become very difficult, especially when you have hairs, you know, getting the green just around the hair or just around the edge of the body or whatever. Getting a clean key is one of the hardest things in green screening. So you need, you need to give yourself every advantage you can. And so one of the things that they do when you're shooting film is you try to shoot on a low speed stock. So each film stock has its own ISO. Not like digital cameras where you can change the ISO. Each film stock has an ISO. It has a sensitivity. And the higher, the more sensitive it is, the more grain you have in the image. So the, low, the less sensitive it is, the less grain you have. So I don't know exactly what stock they would have shot on my guess is it would have been at least at, at most they let you get away with a 250 stock it might have only been a 100 stock 100 iso stock which it, for those of you who've shot film or shot anything you know that that's not very sensitive at all which means you need a ton of light just to get the image exposed even if you're shooting wide open which i don't I don't think they shoot green screen wide open. I think they shoot it like a 5.6 or something. So shooting on film became a massive hassle for this green screen stuff. Just ridiculous. Because, And then the more light you put into the room, the more green bounce you're getting onto the actors, which makes it even harder to key. So just the, the shooting green screen became just a huge technical issue that really slowed them down and really created a lot of issues. But Robert Rodriguez being fairly good friends or, or at least good acquaintances with George Lucas asked him about the digital stuff and, and, and he liked what he was hearing. So when they went to go do reshoots on Spy Kids, Robert Rodriguez grabbed one of the HD cameras, one of the digital cameras at the time, and set it up side by side with his film camera so that he would have, have something to compare and contrast with. And he was blown away by the results. Just couldn't believe it. For his money, with the digital footage, even printed onto film, because that was the way to do it at the time. If you're going to compare film and digital, you actually had to print the digital onto film. So for his money, he couldn't believe how much better the HD image looked. Now, 
some of that's subjective. Some of that kind of depends on what you want. Um, but as far as he was concerned, the the digital image was far superior. And this immediately helped him see into what the future was going to be. He was like, oh, well, I don't know about everybody else, but I'm just going to shoot on digital now because I like the image better and it's going to be way easier to use, which is fair. And so for Spy Kids 2, Spy Kids 3, Once Upon a Time in Mexico, Sin City, and, and just forever now, that is what Robert Rodriguez is shot on. Every single movie he's shot has been digital because it's a medium that he prefers. And it has opened doors for him that would not have been there otherwise, or at least would have been more difficult for him to do. So that's all we've got for for this class session. Next class session is going to be Spy Kids 3D. Um, hopefully that's not annoying. I know we've covered at least one 3D movie every year so far. I think that streak's going to get broken next year uh, if we go the route I'm, I'm, I'm leaning toward right now. Um, and then we're going to talk about Once Upon a Time in Mexico, and then we're going to get back to Quentin Tarantino with Kill Bill Volume 1. Um, so yeah, uh, thank you all for listening to this class session of Hitchcock University. Um, if you like what you're hearing, please give us a rating, a comment, or review, uh, wherever it is you listen to, to the podcast, whether that's on SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, Apple Podcasts. Um, and, uh, and if you'd like to get in touch with us at the podcast, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, otherwise you can email us at hitchcockuniversity at gmail.com. Um, or you can reach us, um, on Facebook, Hitch, uh, just Hitchcock University is the name of the page or on Twitter. Our handle is at hitch underscore you. Um, and, uh, I'm trying to keep everybody updated with the YouTube channel through those uh, sources as well. Um, uh, the YouTube channel, uh, Hitchcock university, which is, uh, where I'm doing the Robert Rodriguez method, where I'm trying to go out and shoot stuff. El Mariachi style, just one man banded as much as I can. Um, and, uh, and, and, and using that to get better, um, at different, um, just different technical skills. So each video is, um, wrapped around a technical skill that I that I think I could use some practice in. Uh, but yeah, that's all we have for Hitchcock University, where you learn filmmaking from the masters. My name is Taylor Bickle. Thanks again for listening, and we will talk to you again in two weeks.